Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, June 3rd, marks our 154th program. Today's featured Actus solution is Staying Engaged. Actus presents virtual education in community. Of course, as you all know by now, we had to cancel our 2020 conference, unfortunately, which was scheduled for um, last month in, in Vegas. But just because we have to practice social distancing and stay at home, that doesn't mean education and networking have to stop. In fact, we at Actus think they're more relevant than ever. So we are inviting you to join us for this special program, June 17 to 19, Staying Engaged, Actus Presents Virtual Education and Community. It's going to have uh, a range of valuable CDI-related sessions, um, both live and pre-recorded. You will have access to these programs through mid-November. Um, you will have access to an act, our conference app and be able to network with your colleagues in a series of moderated chats we also have a few other fun events planned for staying engaged, so I hope you can make it to that uh, special event we have coming up in just a couple weeks. Okay, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, New Guidelines for CAP. I'm joined today by my co-host at left of your screen, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is the CDI Education Director for us here at Actus and HC Pro. She's the lead developer and instructor for our CDI boot camps, a subject matter expert, member of our CCDSO exam certification committee and our Actus advisory board. You've seen her on the circuit as a speaker, author, and uh, we're glad to have her back on today's program. So welcome, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. All right. Next, I'd like to introduce today's special guest. This is his, uh, I believe, his second appearance on the podcast, and we, we're thrilled to have him back, uh, Dr. Hike. Um, Dr. Hike has practiced medicine in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, since 1980, has received board certification in internal pulmonary and critical care medicine. He has a lengthy list of professional accomplishments, including chief of internal medicine, director of respiratory care services, and board of trustees at his local hospital. Uh, president of the Okaloosa County Medical Society and representative of the Government Liaison Committee for the American College of Chest Physicians. His background in CDI and coding is also very extensive. He has served on the AHA's Editorial Advisory Board and Expert Advisor, Advisory Panel of Coding Clinic for ICD-9-CM. I believe you penned some of those entries that are still being referenced every day by CDI professionals, Dr. Hike. Um, has helped on all the development of our query practice briefs we've done in conjunction with AHIMA. Regular presenter, and he's uh, since 1988 has served as director of DRG Review Inc., which is a physician-directed hospital coding consultative service. Thrilled to have him back on the program, so welcome, Dr. Hike. Hey, thank you for having me, Brian. Appreciate it. All right, absolutely. Okay, as we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. You'll be seeing that on your screen. Um, so we're asking, how frequently do you receive denials for types of community-acquired pneumonia 
including gram-negative bacterial and staph pneumonias. So your options are infrequently to never, occasionally, regularly, don't know, are not applicable. Again, how frequently do you receive denials for types of community-acquired pneumonia, including gram-negative bacterial and staph pneumonias? Do you describe your denial frequency as infrequently to never, uh, occasional denials, regular denials, don't know or not applicable? Let's give this one more minute. We've got about two-thirds of our audience that have voted and our numbers are starting to normalize here. So we're going to go ahead and close this out and we will, of course, return to the poll a little bit later on today's program. Okay, as I mentioned, uh, Bill Hike, Dr. Hike is our guest today. I want to, again, welcome you to the show and thanks for being a part of the Actus podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, today's show, you, you had tipped us off here that it was prompted by a relatively recent change to the guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of adults with community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP. Uh, this is, these guidelines were from a very authoritative body, uh, or bodies, I should say, the American Thoracic Society and Infectious Diseases Society of America in a publication, the uh, American Journal of Respiratory and critical care medicine. I'm going to navigate to that in just a moment and show everyone where the article is. It's really lengthy and detailed. And um, so I'm hoping maybe, Dr. Hike, you could start with a, kind of a, if you could, a high level overview of what was published and, and when. Yeah, sure enough. Uh, well, back in October of 2019, the, uh, as you said, the uh, Infectious Disease Society of America and the ATS, they updated there are 10-year-old guidelines regarding CAP, community-acquired pneumonias. Um, now, the whole idea here is to, uh, they attempted to identify patients who are at a higher risk for drug-resistant uh, bacterial pneumonias, such as uh, gram-negative bacteria like Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus. So based on this new guideline, um, they brought in clinical information uh, that impacted diagnosis, treatment and the management of patients with CAP, realizing, frankly, that there was actually a, a paucity of, of good, high-quality high clinical studies that looked into this matter. So what they've emphasized in this guideline, that, that one should use uh, clinical judgment when addressing these patients. So, uh, so bottom line, this is a great guideline. It's very helpful, but it's just a guideline. It's not sacrosanct. <laughs> Okay. okay. Right. I love that you say that. No, I, 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 I always get frustrated when people read a guideline and say it must it's, take it black and white. So, yay, right. kudos for you for saying that. Well, I was, I was going to say um, it's more of a guide, guide dog, not a guard dog. That's my one way. <laughs> I'm more colloquial than I usually sound. Uh, but I do say it primarily for the benefit of, of third-party reviewers as well. Um, yes. Yeah. I appreciate that. We may have so you audit. mentioned, yeah. So you mentioned that the um, this is an update from um, guidance that was released ten years ago. How does it differ from what we pre previously understood regarding community acquired pneumonia? You, you know, Laura, you always you always have those good questions. You always get right to the heart of the matter. You're, I, you're try. Very, yeah, I try. Yeah, I, 
I wish I could be as succinct as you, but unfortunately, you would have to suffer here. No, I'll, I'll see if I can answer that. <laughs> you know, basically, what's new and exciting here is that um, they basically expanded the uh, bacterial organisms that are classified under the heading of CAP to include organisms such as gram-negative bacteria, you know, Pseudomonas, Proteus, E. coli, Klebsiella, etc., and and Staphylococcus. Uh, when there are certain risk factors that are present. Now, as you know, this potentially impacts the DRG segregation as well as uh, has an HCC impact. As, as previously, as physicians and coders, I think, we've always considered CAP to include organisms such as Streptomonia, Streptococcus, H. flu, atypical bacteria such as Chlamydia or Mycoplasma, and, and viral pneumonias, except for except for COVID. Well, the, this is important because these organisms, along with the term CAP, which doesn't have its own code, um, segregates to um, a DRG 195 through 193. So, you know, simple pneumonia DRG. And, and these DRGs have a, a lower relative weight, lower expected hospital length of stay, and the organisms themselves have a lower HCC classification from the DRG 179 to 177 complex pneumonias, where, where gram-negative pneumonias and staphylococcus, they segregate to those, to those DRGs. So, um, so what's, what's important here is that these organisms usually infect patients who have formerly thought to come from high-risk settings, such as uh, where they mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess what's different now uh, I finally got to your question what's different now is that these high-risk sitting settings where we collectively call those HCAP or hospital acquired I mean uh, hospital I'm sorry healthcare acquired pneumonias the such as places like uh, nursing homes or long-term care facilities dialysis etc um, we've always felt like, gosh, if a patient comes from there, those settings, they were definitely colonized with gram-negative or staff, and we should treat them that way. But what they've realized in this guideline is that despite treating these people with broad-spectrum antibiotics, we didn't really favorably out, uh, impact their outcomes. As a matter of fact, we, we, we led to greater complications. They had uh, C. difficile infections. They had increased antibiotic resistance. So, so now we believe that in this new guideline, that there are other actually risk factors that that are more important than the healthcare exposure uh, that you should, you should consider when when you suspect uh, gram-negative pneumonias or staphylococcal pneumonias. So, so again, the bottom line here is that hospital sorry healthcare acquired pneumonias, HCAP, HCAP, is really kind of like RIP. Dead. We should we shouldn't use those terms anymore. Hmm. Um, and from right. a CDI perspective, uh, that you asked me about, from a CDI perspective, we, we should consider uh, staff and gram negatives uh, when the patient says uh, community acquired pneumonia, particularly when there are risk factors present and supported by the appropriate treatment. And let me say one more thing, and I'll and I'll try to be quiet. <clears throat> <laughs> This guideline, by the way, didn't uh, um, 
include patients that were from recent foreign travel, and it didn't in include patients who were immune suppressed, where we do know they're high risk for uh, multi-resistant uh, bacteria. And certainly we didn't talk about hospital-acquired pneumonias, ventilator-associated pneumonias, or uh, aspiration pneumonia. So this was circumscribed to this, the patients that we just talked about. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you said we should kind of rest in peace those terms of HCAP and, <laughs> and CAP. I, I appreciate that one. Thank you. All right, PHCAP. Okay. <laughs> maybe we could kind of maybe drill down to a couple of the, uh, the diagnoses of relevance to CDI professionals. Um, start with gram-negative pneumonia if you could you know what maybe talk a little bit about dr. hike some of the risk factors to look for in the chart and um, you know boil sure. down what needs to be documented by the physician you know to get that supporting clinical criteria we're going to see later on in our poll uh, the denials uh, what the percentages are but I know it's important to have the the criteria uh, charted as well yeah good good point excellent point the um yeah, so what, do you, what does a CDI person look for in a health record to be able to formulate a clinically sustained query to the physician? Mm -hmm. An appropriate query, I should say. So to the new risk factors, the two biggie, the biggies risk factors for gram-negative or, um, or uh, staphylococcal infections is one, a previous known colonization within the last 12 months, uh, particularly of respiratory secretion. So, uh, this is argument, augmented by, say, a gram stain when a patient comes in. They may have a gram stain positivity or a pseudomonas or staph or, or suspected for pseudomonas or staph. So a previous colonization, someone you know has pseudomonas in the past, in the last 12 months. We worry about those guys. We also, anybody who's been hospitalized and has received uh, IV antibiotics, not necessarily during the hospitalization, but they've been hospitalized within the last uh, uh, 90 days and received antibiotics either in or out of the hospital for the last 90 days, they are big risk for um, uh, multi-resistant uh, bacteria like gram-negatives and staph. The, also, you know, we, we they, they tangentially address this during the, uh, in the article, but we always know that people who have structural lung disease like bronchiectasis or cystic fibrosis, those guys are almost always colonized with uh, staph or uh, pseudomonas or, or other gram negatives. Uh, so, and that's because, frankly, they're they have frequent contact with the uh, healthcare. Uh, they oftentimes get antibiotics, which select out uh, resistant organisms. So they're at great risk. I mean, you should always consider those organisms when you see those patients. Um, and then finally, of course, immune suppressed patients. You know, those who have AIDS or have been on prednisone or have cancer. Um, those groups are commonly susceptible to uh, gram-negatives and staph, particularly gram-negatives because because those organisms are rather fastidious. They don't they don't invade very easily unless you've got something wrong with your immune system. So uh, we always worry about those organisms in in those in those in those folks. And of course, they have increased contact with healthcare as well. Um, and then people with chronic comorbidities, um, like diabetes or malnutrition or chronic kidney disease or liver disease or chronic heart failure, those guys also um, uh, have frequent contact with healthcare. They frequently get antibiotics. And by goodness, if they are infected, they typically die. So we, we don't want those, we don't want to miss a gram negative or a staphylococcal pneumonia in those people. 
So finally, so if you have the right sort of risk factors, then when I ask the doctor or query the physician to its presence, I also look for the appropriate treatment. So uh, bottom line, we don't use narrow spectrum antibiotics for this for these organisms. We don't use penicillin or azithromycin or doxycycline or amoxicillin. We go we go with the big boy antibiotics, uh, uh, third fourth generation cephalosporins like uh, ceftazidime, which is a Fortaz, or uh, extended spectrum penicillins like uh, Zosin, uh, or even uh, aminoglycosides like genomycin and and tobramycin. By the way, those particular antibiotics, aminoglycosides, all they actually treat are gram-negative bacteria. So if that's the only drug we're giving people, or at least recovering with that antibiotic, then, I mean, by definition almost, we have gram-negative infection. Of course, you still have to query. Mm -hmm. I know I rattled off a bunch of antibiotics just then, so I wanted to make sure uh, that you knew that um, in, a, in a February 2020 um, briefings on coding compliance strategies, uh, I authored a little uh, article uh, regarding these guidelines, and I listed those antibiotics. So nice. um, if you're not a subscriber, I guess you ought to become a subscriber uh, to get that, or, uh, uh, or Brian, you may, you may offer something on that regard as well. Yeah, I think we're going to post that article. Normally it is for a subscription only, but um, so the show notes for these articles, uh, excuse me, for these shows on actus.org, I will put a link to that article. So go to actus.org cool. and check out uh, the, the podcast archives. You'll, we'll put a link in there as well as your contact information, Dr. Hike. Well, that'd be perfect. And, 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 and that's perfect. Yeah. We'll block <laughs> the hate mail, but we'll, we'll put your right yeah, yeah, you address. You do have that kind of screen, don't you? <laughs> I do. Like Twitter or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are funny. Oh, um, yeah. I, Number one, I want to start with thank you for talking about the antibiotics and the appropriate treatment. Um, you know, when you're looking for clues or clinical indicators in the chart, those are uh, strong support for going for those more complex cases. Now, um, you know, you, you kind of answered this question with gram negative, but I want to ask you about MRSA pneumonia. Speaking to the risk factors, the indicators that you might see, and what you might need to find within the chart to provide a strong query to providers, yeah. um, to hopefully yeah. convince them to give the appropriate documentation. Yeah, good, good, good question. Well, fortunately, um, this, this, the, the two biggies, uh, colonization within the last year and uh, IV, and, IV antibiotics and hospitalization within the last 90 days, those 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 also support MRSA or uh, uh, staphylococcal infections. You know, a third one, which is kind of which which kind of has come back to uh, um, I can't say haunt me. I guess ratify me is that um, is concurrent uh, infections with uh, influenza. Those folks, particularly young people, end up having staphylococcal infections. And the reason I say it gratifies me that uh, back when I was a fellow, pulmonary fellow. Uh, 40 years ago, uh, 50 years ago, um, uh, we studied this. It's actually our study back in the University of Tennessee. And I, I, used, I used to complain all the time, all the extra paperwork we had to do for the study. But now it, uh, I find in the literature it's actually uh, supported. So um, influenza infections, uh, those folks tend to get staph infections as well. So I look for those settings. And then once again, the appropriate antibiotics. Unfortunately, the list here is pretty, pretty slim for staph. 
either vancomycin or most commonly Zyvox linicid is a is the antibiotics we will typically give for uh, drug resistant staph, the methicillin resistant staph uh, infections. So good question. All right. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Hike, would you mind if we took a question or two from the audience that were uh, messaged to me? I think might um, might tie in nicely to the denials poll result we get here in just a moment. Um, I'm, still, I'm always happy to confuse people. With <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, this 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 particular listener wrote: uh, payers are denying claims based on no sputum evidence of a gram-negative organism and not accepting treatment or risk factors as evidence. Any recommendations you might have to appeal that type of Ouch. a case? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, although this, although this guideline does recommend sputum cultures in certain in instances, people with severe disease or, or exposure to uh, drug-resistant uh, uh, bacteria, um, we know that sputum cultures are just not very reliable, frankly. There was a study back all the way back down to 1950 that where a lady, uh, Dr. Barrett O'Connor, she, uh, she actually sampled the pus of people's lungs uh, with a needle. They just go directly through the skin and sampled it, and they and they used that as the gold standard of the of the of the bacteria that caused the infection. And then they looked at sputum cultures. Well, half the time the sputum cultures were normal flora or no growth. 25% of the time it grew out of pathogens. Only 25% of the time did they actually meet um, the true pathogenic infection of the pneumonia. So sputum cultures are not reliable, particularly when people can't produce them because they're super sick or they've been on previous antibiotics, which folks are oftentimes are. So to answer your question, um, to make a long story short, too late I guess, but to make a long story short, uh, I, I would definitely show them the, the article that we just we just referenced. Okay. Um, uh, and point out that commonly, more commonly than not, we treat patients based on our clinical acumen and suspicion than we do on actual culture technique, which is what, which is probably the greatest positive of information we have if we don't have great techniques for diagnosing uh, these patients, which is what everyone wants. We want uh, better studies, uh, non-invasive studies we can do to, to actually show the infective organism and they're coming we're getting some pcr studies are that are coming so great uh, test yeah. yeah and then sort of maybe one other and then we'll we'll, we'll move on here uh, related to denials this person asked is there is there any type of expectation for a typical length of stay for a person with gram negative pneumonia and do they require a certain length of time on iv antibiotics for example and maybe that could that be factored into a denial appeal yeah, good, good question. Typically, we use a minimum of five days of antibiotics uh, unless the cultures that we get allow for uh, uh, de-escalation of the treatment. So from there, we sometimes can move to uh, antibiotics that by mouth that do cover some of the gram-natives and staphylococcal organisms. Um, and again, the article I, I gave you some of those antibiotics that we get by mouth. So uh, I would normally say that the length of stay is usually four or five days for gram-negative pneumonias and staph pneumonias, but because we have such, we're having better PO antibiotics, uh, that we're cutting that time back. So, um, okay. I, I guess I, I guess the answer is there's no specific date time for that. But good, good question. Yeah. Yep. 
Okay. Some really sophisticated listeners here. I know. Well, we're going to get to the poll results in a minute, but do, any any final takeaways here you want to leave with our with our audience? Pearls of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. Pearls of wisdom. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I think the the best way to of course get this documented is to educate the physicians. And I and I and I know I. I hear sort of a collective moan every time I say educate the physicians. Um, but frankly, um, and I know this is easier for me uh, to talk to my peer group, uh, but I, I think what one could do is uh, show the article that I've talked about in the, uh, uh, that I've referenced, or maybe the article I wrote since it's more succinct than the, than the guidelines, and, and, and ask the doctor to what they think about it. You know, tell us what you think about it. Uh, rather than just giving it to them to quote educate them, ask them their opinion. Hmm. You know, I, I, think, I think doctors do like to teach. You know, the word doctor comes from the word doctrine, meaning to teach. And so I, I think I think most doctors don't mind being asked their opinion about something, especially if they haven't had the opportunity to educate. They, I think, like most of us, they just don't want to be told what to do. Um, so um, I, I, I think that would be my my suggestion is. Um, Asking for their opinion based on the article or on the, or the, or the article that I, that I summarized, I've written and summarized. All right. Well, we're definitely going to share that. That's that's a great suggestion. Usually, you hear, you know, to educate at the doctor, but actually ask them their opinion. Um, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a nice suggestion. All and right. Then tell me you don't. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> sure, nice you say that. I don't agree. All right, let's um let's share our poll results here. So again, we asked folks uh, how frequently they received denials for types of community acquired pneumonia, including gram negative, bacterial, and staph. Um, most don't know. Fifty-five percent. I think you know we 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 know that CDI professionals aren't always involved in denials and appeals, but this does point to that. But um, eight. 8% do receive regular denials, 19% occasional denials, 13% uh, infrequently, and 5% not applicable. As I always say, we have some listeners that aren't necessarily in acute care hospital setting. So any any thoughts on these poll results here, Dr. Hike? Well, I, I think, I, I, based on the question we had, I think it's always important to rebut. It, rebut the the denial if if you have the appropriate risk factors, uh, and and if they don't agree, I'd rebut again. You know, I'd ask for another uh, review because I I think you can't get away from the literature. And and, and frankly, I I, I don't want to sound a pro rack here or whatever, but I, I I do have conversations frequently with one of the rack medical directors, and I, and I can truly say that he he does wish to have the appropriate clinical uh, criteria to find diseases. I don't, I don't really think, you know, that he's a dark force, which a lot of us like to think so. And I know they're, they're motivated to collect money, et cetera, uh, from denials. But I, 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 I think if you can get to the right people with your re repeat, repeat rebuttals, then I think you're, you'll be better off uh, in the long run, not just in the short run, but in the long run. So right. that's my experience with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump to a, I know we're getting close to end time here. We'll do a quick in the news uh, segment. So in the news, again, is a regular segment we bring you featuring 
uh, industry updates and news relevant to the CDI profession. Today I'd like to discuss uh, another aspect of the IPPS inpatient prospective payment system proposed rule, which we covered on our last show. This one is related to price transparency. Uh, this is an article from Healthcare Dive. Um, so this new tr price transparency rule was initially proposed in the 2020 IPPS proposed rule, so last year's, but was expanded on uh, in this year's proposed rule. And we have some trans pricing transparency um, regulations slated to take effect on January 1st. However, hospitals and specifically the American Hospital Association are really pushing back hard on this, as we'll see in this particular article here. Um, I have a, a link here again. I'll share this with our listeners in the show notes just to the 2021 IPPS proposed rules. You can you can read that in its entirety here. There's all the tables again uh, and the rule itself. There's a link to it um, down below. But essentially, um, from the 2021 IPPS proposed rule, CMS has stated that in order to reduce the Medicare program's reliance on the hospital charge master and to support development of a market-based approach to payment under the Medicare fee-for-service system, they're proposing that hospitals will be required to report certain market-based payment rate information on their Medicare cost report for cost reporting periods ending on or after January 1, 2021 to be used in a potential change to the methodology for calculating the IPPS MSDRG relative weights to reflect uh, market-based pricing. Specifically, they're proposing that hospitals would report on the Medicare cost report, this is pretty interesting, the median payer-specific negotiated charge that the hospital has negotiated with all of its Medicare Advantage organizations by MSDRG, and two, the median payer-specific negotiated charge the hospital has negotiated with all of its third-party payers, which would include Medicare organizations, again, by MSDRG. So uh, those charges that are frequently, you know, uh, we, we don't know quite often how they're always set. There's a formula. It's negotiated kind of behind the scenes. CMS wants this information um, public and posted. And, of course, not surprisingly, hospitals are, are pushing back on this. Um, there's a quote here from the American Hospital Association representative. Um, actually, this is a joint statement. Uh, they're already suing HHS for earlier price transparency efforts and basically said, we're very disappointed that CMS continues down the unlawful path of requiring hospitals to disclose privately negotiated contract terms. Uh, this disclosure of privately negotiated rates will not further CMS's goal of paying market rates. They take into account any number of unique circumstances between a private payer and a hospital and simply are not relevant for fixing fee-for-service Medicare reimbursement. Um, some pretty strong words there. They're essentially argued that um, these disclosing these uh, negotiated prices is in violation of the First Amendment as the data is protected proprietary information. So obviously a lot more to come here uh, about transparency and whether or not this will go into effect. A lot of pushback. Um, so just curious, Dr. Hike, if you have any thoughts on this particular controversy, transparency in general, and whether you think it yeah. could be effective as a mechanism for, for driving down healthcare costs. Right, right, yeah, exactly. I, I'll probably be brief because I know you're running out of time. Yep. time. 
uh, I, I think it does actually would be effective. I, I, I totally understand where the hospitals are coming from. Uh, I mean, you know, hospital CFOs, I, I, that's, the, that's the most closely guarded secret they have. Mm-hmm. This is a proprietary race. I, I think they sleep with them under their pillows at night. Um, you know, but uh, uh, but you know, in regarding the First Amendment, you make a deal with CMS and take their money. It's it's kind of like the five hundred pound gorilla. You know, they could sit wherever they want. Um, so, I, additionally, I, when you do that and when you participate with CMS, which they all do. Um, you know, it's like this lady I, I used to work with a lot of years before she retired. She's a coding director of CMS. She said, said talking about the government, says it may not be right, but it's official. So um, I, I think it it's going to be official, and uh, I can. Uh, I don't think they're going to win this one. I don't think the, the hospitals are going to win this fight. Yeah, and I, and I actually agree with what they're doing. Actually, but I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, I imagine the coming months will be interesting as this makes its way through the courts and, and uh, yeah. we'll see what happens. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus podcast, Talking CDI. Uh, we're going to see you back here again in, in three weeks. So we're a little bit off cadence. We've got our program I was talking about earlier, um, staying engaged, coming up on June 17th through the 19th. So we're going to come back the week after for COVID-19 queries and frontline workflow. Um, Just as a reminder, you can listen to the show recordings anytime on our website. I'll again be posting that article Dr. Hike referred to there, as well as his contact information if you'd like to get a hold of him. Um, You can also listen to our show via uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And finally, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, we've got a couple great Uh, questions in the past week that I think I'm going to try to work into an upcoming show. I love those. They help us shape the future of the program. So just send me an email at uh, bmurphy at actus.org. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Hyke, for coming on. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here again in, in three weeks. Take care now.